This is Father Patrick Briscoe. <laughs> this is Father Gregory Pond. Welcome to God's Planning. Thanks to all those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to God's Planning wherever you listen to your podcasts. Well, Father Gregory, hmm. I have recently dreamt the dreams of a free man. Okay. Right. It having just been the 4th of July. <laughs> and I think, I'm thinking of a lot of things. I'm thinking of that gif or jif, if you will. Both. Of the barbecue grill on skis with that guy. So I don't know this one, but say more. across the water yep. with a big American flag behind him. Good. Yeah. And in my head, uh, the Star Spangled Banner is blasting. This pleases But me. the rock version. Oh, nice. Yeah. And fireworks overhead. Good. And a bald eagle swoops down. Yep. And grabs a fish from the water. Uh-huh. And when he picks the fish up, it turns into... Yes. Diamonds. The tickets are light. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I love the I love the Fourth of July. I love the summertime. I mean, for me, it means being at the lake with my family, mm -hmm. which is delightful. I love it too. I recently came back from Not America, mm. and I don't have bad things to say about Not America. Um, I've given up such light speech, um, but I do have good things to say about America. Um, and you know, like when we went to the novitiate, and our novice master made fun of us for being from certain regions or for having certain ethnic backgrounds. We will not call this racism or regionalism. We will just call this formation. Uh, you like felt stronger and prouder of where you came from. I think in part, you know, like going away and coming back home gives you a, a similar feel. And we had talked about this in one episode, patriotism. And I think one of the things for which I'm most happy is the American church. Mm. Not to just like bang the drum and just, you know, set the Roman candles a burning, but it's really, it's really, yeah, it's a gift. So I'm very grateful for the pastoral care that we receive. I'm very grateful for just like the Catholic resources that are available, but also the spirit of the American Catholic, which is often very enterprising. Like maybe entrepreneurial would be a good word, which at times can feel like a little bit businessy, a little bit crass, but also there's the sense that if you want it, well, we'll go for it. You know, if God supplies the grace, it'll be blessed. If he doesn't, it won't party on. <laughs> so America, amen. Nice. Well, that's uh, that's certainly a great introduction to today's episode, which is about an American. Which is it about the famous American? <laughs> no. Well, um, he I, kind he was, of. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, kind of. Yeah. He was born, we'll but then kind of renounced his American life. But God bless him. Keep going. That's right. So anyway, no. But we're we're here we're here to talk about T. S. Eliot and one of his great collections of poems, right? Because it's technically four poems, the four quartets. So why don't you give us Father Gregory just like the postage stamp? view of T.S. Eliot, who we've already shown is complicated by being <laughs> kind of American. Yeah, so T let's see, T.S. Eliot dies in 1965, and he's a poet uh, and a playwright. Many people know him for what's the murder in the cathedral, um, but he is also a literary critic, so he's able to produce. He's a creative, as you might say, and then he's able to criticize, so he's also a critic. Um, and he really ushers in a kind of golden age of literary criticism in the 20th century. But he's known to many people who will read him in a secular setting as a modern. So The Wasteland is a thoroughly modern poem. Uh, or, you know, J. Alfred Prufrock, thoroughly modern. You know, there's just many modern things in his early works. But then he came to faith uh, in the late 30s, early 40s, I believe it is. Um, he became Anglican, but a kind of high incarnational sacramental Anglican. And that changed his aspect or changed his view of reality. And so we find in his subsequent works, 
uh, a greater commitment to meaning and purpose and truth and the capacity of human language, even while it's modest and limited, to communicate something of that. Uh, so reading the Four Quartets, this is the high water mark of his kind of Christian, incarnational, sacramental view of reality as communicated in, in poetry. So that's awesome. How so? If so, if someone weren't to weren't to know the fact that you just mentioned that Four Quartets was written after his conversion, how different of a poem do you think this really is from the Wasteland? Yeah, uh, I, I so like in terms of literary style, it's very much indebted to his modern upbringing or his modern background. It's almost like when you read somebody like David Foster Wallace, it's clear that he's worked with or that he's studied like these postmodern authors like Thomas Pynchon. Uh, but that he he wants to use the tools for achieving an end which its creators didn't envision. It's like even if you strip it all down, you know, even if you unmask it, even if you lay it bare, you can still use it to communicate something real. And I think that's like what you find, for instance, in Infinite Jest, which is like very sober, um, heartfelt appraisal of the human condition in the case of a recovered alcoholic and then like, an amateur tennis player star. Um, and I think that you find something here with the four quartets. So it's, it's you know, he's using like Ezra Pound-like um, literary or linguistic manipulation to show his virtuoso status. And he's making all of these different references to classical and medieval and, you know, modern and contemporary literature in a variety of different veins. He's just doing it all. He's, he's showing himself to be... Um, yeah, just an excellent artisan of this particular craft. Uh, but then it's clear that his vision of reality has really invested the poetry itself with something beyond the mere technical or the mere poetically competent. Um, and when he gets into the human condition or uh, the Lord's kind of interposition of grace in the midst thereof, you have a sense that, okay, this is this is more than modern poetry. Mm. Mm. So yeah, let's let's dive into that a little bit. This is more than modern poetry. Okay, so we have if we have to summarize the the high points, what are the concepts kind of lurking under the hood of four quartets that that make it so distinct from the wasteland? What are the what are the kind of bullet points we can take off and say, well, when I'm looking for a poem and I want to describe it as a Christian poem, it should have or could have some of these themes. I don't want the list to be exhaustive yeah, or yeah. exclusionary necessarily, but if I'm thinking a conversion really changes how a poet views the world, mm -hmm. what is it What is it that we can recognize in the writing as a residue of that? Yeah, I think like when you read The Wasteland, you see a certain cynicism or skepticism. There's a famous passage which describes um, an incident of sexual intercourse between a man and a woman kind of come back from work. And I think it's the woman's a typist. And so her gestures are described mechanically at the desk and then her gestures in the context of her bedroom are also described in similar fashion and the man treats mm. her accordingly mm. and it feels hollow. It feels dead. Mm. It feels just lamentably empty. Um, and when you turn to the four quartets, the, the image of man and woman in the four quartets is very different. So there's one where he takes this passage from an earlier poet about a marriage festival. Um, and he'll use even the archaic, um, orthography and, you know, kind of verse structure to communicate something noble and good. He, he refers to uh, the sacrament of matrimony as a dignified and commodious sacrament. Mm. Um, and he'll describe like the feet of the dancers as earth feet, loam feet, you know? So it's like, you know, from 
they, they, they've come from the earth in a certain sense, and they're bound to return to the earth, but he's not saying that as a kind of exasperated exhalation that they won't amount to anything. He's trying to highlight the fact that, that something beautiful is here um, in the sacramental order, which is, which is cool. So um, the first would be, yeah, just the approach to, to humanity, and then the second would be the, the possibility of transcendence. So you have the oracle in the wasteland, Tiresias with wrinkled dugs, um, made famous by the scene in Brideshead Revisited where the Anthony Blanche recites it from a balcony. <laughs> <laughs> and I, Tiresias. Um, so Viewers y- will appreciate out wishes on the bookshelf here behind us. Exactly. Um, but, but he, you know, the oracle, he sees, but he saves not, mm. right? He has foreseen all, he has suffered all, but he can't change any of it. And as a result of which, it can be really just desolating, um, disconcerting even to work your way through that poem. Um, perhaps that's too stern of a judgment, but you see. Uh, whereas in this particular instance, you know, in the instance of the four quartets, he has a lot of like rich incarnational imagery, uh, but with uh, a kind of aspect of faith and of hope and of charity. Mm. Um, and so he'll talk about like the Angelus bell, which recurs time and again. He gives this beautiful sacramental passage where he talks about, you know, eating the flesh of God and drinking the blood of God. Uh, the, yeah, the, the flesh, our only food, the blood, our only drink, you know, it's just like, so, so he's reinvesting and in reinvesting, he's coming to discover a certain transcendence. So I would say like the human and then the, the incarnate would be the two big things where you see a kind of shift. Right. I, the point, the point on hope was not insignificant. I love that you started with that so that there could be something beyond what the poet sees. I mean, part of, part of the way that I think the poem manages that is just, it's opening with this meditation on time. Okay, so how about I read the first couple lines of Bernd Norton, yep. and then you can wax poetic <laughs> uh, about these lines, and then I'll correct your interpretation. Perfect. Okay. Uh, yep. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. Footfalls echo in the memory down the passage, which we did not take towards the door we never opened into the rose garden. My words echo thus in your mind, but to what purpose? Disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves, I do not know. Other echoes inhabit the garden. Shall we follow? All right, thoughts. Yeah, many. Um, <laughs> so the first is, I think that when reading T.S. Eliot, there's a kind of temptation to say, well, what does it mean? And I think that might be the wrong question to ask of a poem, because mm-hmm. everything that the poem says means. Right. So a poem doesn't exist to be boiled down. What you have before you, the poem is already boiled down. This is one of the most compact and potent ways to give expression to a human reality, which can't really be described in other words. And that's like, so, so when, you, when you read it, you're like, this seems like really cool at the beginning, and then he's talking about a bowl of like rose leaves. It's like, what's going on here? Like, schematize this for me, chief. Um, but he says, no, 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 this is, this is not something that you aim to schematize or, or to boil down. It's something that you aim to experience because he has a vision of reality, and he's transposing that vision, vision of reality into words such that you can, you can be drawn into it. Um, and I love this idea that like, you know, Time, in order to be redeemable, must progress. So time 
present and time past or both perhaps present and time future and time future contained in time past, but it's like it has to be strung out um, because we as human beings are intended to live just such a life. And it might be a temptation for us to think, I wish I were like an angel who just made one decision and then reaped the harvest for all eternity. Or we might even say to ourselves, I wish I were just a beast without all this responsibility. I, w I wouldn't have to engage with time in the way that we as human beings are called to do. Uh, but that's the thing. We are called to be human beings. We are given freedom. And as a result of which, it's to us to exercise it. Um, and I think here you feel the burden of time, but you also feel the promise of time. And so what we're looking for is a kind of redemption. And then we're thinking, all right, give me some grandiose way by which to, uh, to apply. And then he says, you know, follow me into a rose garden, right? And, and, and then next we get this image of, of dried rose petals in a bowl. And the image there is one of like potpourri, perhaps, um, which we might associate with our grandmothers or great-grandmothers. But, but it's this thing that like even a thing that seems dead, dead leaves, still give off a perfume. So they're still able to make beautiful. They're still able to make rich. They're still able to bear fruit. And so we can't foreclose on the meaning of our past. We can't foreclose, certainly, on the meaning of our future. We, we experience the meaning of the present, but all with this, this desire to draw it together and then to draw it out. So, I mean, it's, it's a little bit confused, but, but time just keeps coming up again and again and again in this poem. And so he, he's trying to invest us with or kind of inspire in us a, a commitment to our temporality and the timeliness of it. So... Yeah, it gets me pumped. <laughs> what, do you, what do you make of the fact that the poet, um, the poet's job is to lead us through this journey? Right, it's a little Dante esque, even in that way that he's that he's 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 coaxing he's coaxing us out of out of whatever it is that we're seeing actually in the present into his present. Yeah, I mean, so so without even the reader uh, noticing necessarily, the poet has effectively done this. That he's he's already taken you out of whatever you're experiencing into something different, into what he's experiencing and beckoning you to lead him. Um, that, that to me resonates with so many moments of the spiritual life where you have to be taken out of something as you see it and your view has to be conformed to the way that God sees it or the way that Christ wants you to see a particular situation. Um, do you, what do you make of that? Can you, will you allow a kind of Christian interpretation of the poet as a particular guide in Christian life in that way? Yeah, no, certainly. I think like this idea of a witness, I think mm. that's huge. And it might have different application in T.S. Eliot's conception of it, but he has a lot of lines which seem to suggest that the vision of the poet is creative. And he has, there's like a line that follows where he says, like, the flowers or the roses had the look of flowers that are looked at. <laughs> you know, it's like, what does that mean, you know? Um, but well, but there's something to it. Yeah, go ahead. He's channeling. Well, he's channeling Aquinas there, right? That that an animal has a greater sense of purpose for having been seen by a human being than <laughs> had it not been seen. So we'll we'll allow him a bit of a optimistic moment there. Yeah, yeah. No, but, but like I remember when we were in the novitiate and we had these weekend retreats. It was like every third weekend of the month. Father Nicholas Ingham came and he described the contemplative life. And I remember it was like he afforded me the opportunity to see God and all things in light of God in a new way because he had seen them. Right. And, and it wasn't right. like he was just communicating to me certain tidbits or trivial matters about God. He was imparting to me a vision, right? The, the flowers had the look, or excuse me, the roses had the look of flowers that were looked at. Um, and so I think that's, that's true of Christian witness, whether it be in preaching or in teaching or whatever else. It's that you, you gaze upon God and then you turn to those whom you address, and you're, you're mediating something of that experience. You know, it's like Moses who came down from the mountain with his face lit up by the glory of God. I think that the preacher, the teacher, the Christian witness is meant to, to engage with reality and the beloved in similar fashion. I think that T.S. You know, Eliot is doing something like that here. So, mm. Good. 
Let's move on to another passage. Perfect. There was one, one, one uh, the next one that you mentioned, still, still from the same poem from the um, from the second movement where we were talking about uh, uh, the stanza beginning time past and time future, right? Yep. Okay, so I'm going to do a little bit more reading here, and, it, then, yeah. and then we will comment the text. All right. Time past and time future allow but a little consciousness. To be con- to be conscious is not to be in time, but only in time can the moment in the rose garden. The moment in the arbor where the rain beat, the moment in the drafty church at Smokefall, be remembered, involved with past and future. Only through time, time is conquered. Okay, sorry for my pacing there. No, got, right. got, got distracted by the beauty of some of these images. Yeah. I, I think that, like, I mean, just that last line, we were talking about time being redeemed, and now we're talking about time being conquered. Um, it's clear that there's somebody who is giving direction, right? There's somebody who is about a certain work. And in the first passage from which we read, there was a talk about the end. And the end could sound just like the point at which you arrive, but it's also the point that you intend. It's the, the goal that you have in conceiving of whatever plan is, uh, is currently under work. And I think that, you know, you're talking about time redeemed and time conquered. You're not talking about delivering us from our human state, but you're talking about like kind of giving us back our own humanity so that we can live it well, so that we can live it beautifully. Um, and there you're, you know, you're kind of getting into the incarnate vision as we had gestured to of the poem. Um, so there's this other passage, right, you know, again, in the beginning of Burt Norton, where he talks about at the still point of the turning world, neither from nor towards, it's neither... Yeah, I've forgotten, whatever, it doesn't matter. But um, he talks about the still point of the turning world, and that's read by some as a kind of reference to the incarnation. Um, so it's a, a famous Carthusian dictum, I think. It's like, stat crux orbis volvitor. The cross stands while the world turns. So the Lord, in taking our humanity to himself, imparts to it a certain stability or fixity, such that we, who are storm-tossed and shipwrecked, can have the hope that we can lay hold of something real, in him. Um, and so, you know, in describing these particular things here, uh, we have another insight into that. And it's just, again, it's the, the whole poem is shot through this kind of struggle with time, but a struggle that gives unto a victory or a redemption because it's been undertaken by the incarnate Lord. I mean, in a Christian poem, whenever I'm reading about the garden, I'm immediately thinking the harmony of Eden. And there's something nostalgic that happens whenever you, whenever you conjure Eden. That's coupled in my mind with the image of a rose, which is in plenty of Christian art and uh, poetry, a symbol of Christ's passion, both because of the thorns in the crown and the often red color of roses, right? Symbolizing Christ's blood. There's a beautiful connection between that and the rosary. Uh, so any, so, so I'm, seeing, um, I'm seeing a tension in the garden as both the place where where you where you want to be in a kind of nostalgic sense, a place you want to return to, but also a place that needs to be healed, mm-hmm. um, a place a place that needs to be overcome by time. What do you think about the garden? Yeah, image? no, I mean it's I mean it's a rich biblical image that you can gesture to and just pick up a lot of that kind of cachet. So obviously, you know, our lives begin in the garden, to which you referred with that nostalgia for Eden, uh, an Edenic state. We'll sometimes say a kind of earthly paradise. Mm. Uh, and then it's our fall, you know, that takes place in the same garden. But then when our Lord brings about our redemption, the Garden of Gethsemane features prominently in his passion. It's a place where he goes to accept that chalice. So it's not as if his will rebels against the prospect 
of the passion which lies in store, but he finds it repulsive because it is repulsive on a natural level. And so we see him, you know, engage with that in the garden. So the, the passion is consented to in definitive fashion in the garden. And then, you know, you think about it in terms of the, the kind of new heavens and new earth that await us at the end. So salvation history kind of has this narrative arc, which is punctuated by these principal scenes that take place in gardens, you know, our Lord. Well, yeah. So it's, there, there's something about it. It's, I mean, it's an image of growth. It's an image of new life. It's an image of like a kind of discipline tending to or keeping of, you know, whatever it is that you plant, but we ourselves merit a similar tending to um, and cultivation. And it's, it's like the Lord is mistaken for the gardener, you know, at his resurrection by Mary Magdalene. And he is about a work of, of pruning, of trimming, of growing, of, of increasing to hundredfold. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of this imagery, you know, it's perhaps it ought not be overinterpreted, something that I am certainly guilty of. Um, but, but yeah, when you appeal to a garden like that, you bring that all to bear in the, in the imaginative world of the Christian. So Bert Norton, the first movement, we've, we've talked a lot about time. What are some, what are some of the themes from the second and third movements? And then we've got a passage that we want to yeah. jump to in the fourth while we've got some time remaining. So, so let's, let's talk big overviews for two and three. Yeah. Um, so with East Coker, which is so it goes, Bert Norton, East Coker, the dry selvages, which looks like salvages, but it's pronounced selvages. Um, P.S. If you want to hear T.S. Eliot, read the poem that's available on YouTube. And it's awesome. Like I said, I think he's born in St. Louis, but then basically a Britisher. Uh, and it's this wild kind of mashup of English spoken slash chewed <laughs> by an individual who hails from two continents. Um, time present and time past, both perhaps present and time future. Just um, great. So, you know, full send. Uh, but, but in East Coker, the thing that uh, people typically refer to most is this idea of in my end is my beginning or in my right, beginning right, is my end. Right. Um, and that might sound like something Buddhist or Hindu, a kind of eternal recurrence of the same or the, the snake swallowing its tail, but he doesn't intend it in that way. Um, and intention perhaps is a good word to describe it because when you intend something, you have to have a, a vision of it. Like if I want to go to Newtown, Pennsylvania, um, that, that informs every step that I take between, between now and then. But if I leave, from our house, and I say, I might go somewhere. You know, like, where am I going to turn first? It's just not clear. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if you have you have further thoughts on that particular theme. Well, just that it's also very Thomistic, because we, we, we love this idea, this argument that, um, that the Summa is based on a, a similar principle, right? Um, and the idea that uh, the idea that the destination has to be found uh, at some point in the beginning or, or vice versa because it's that uh, it's that that fully coming to who you were made to be who you're meant to be that fully coming to the origin um, of of your own self that is attributed to divine providence okay so what do I, what do I mean by all of that word salad I mean that God has intended you to be something and he's intended that from the beginning and the end therefore was intended by him from those first moments mm -hmm. um, so exceedingly Christian that would be what I would argue against the I guess a, a Buddhist interpretation there. Yeah, and and this theme comes back at the end of uh, Little Norton. Nope, Little Gidding, sorry. <laughs> um, when he says, the end, the end of all our exploring will be to arrive at the place from which we started and to know it as if for the first time. Um, and I'll say elsewhere, like, and what we have to gain has been gained and lost and lost again, or something like that. I've forgotten exactly how he describes it. But he, he kind of reaffirms for us 
that it's, it's not, we're not like inventing something, right? We're not making this up. It's not for us to set out in the pursuit of some wild novelty. Right. Like the story's right. already been told. It's been told right. in Christ, but that doesn't make it boring. It actually makes it beautiful that that story can be appropriated by each and all and lived in, you know, a thousand different ways. And so he'll, he, he has all of these passages which describe how very modest or how very kind of fragile our efforts are. Oftentimes he's playing on um, the, the, the modesty or the fragility of words uh, and every attempt is a wholly new start and a different kind of failure. You know, it's like, what a, what a way to describe it. An inarticulate, whatever. Like, he'll, he'll talk about a raid on the inarticulate, undisciplined squads <laughs> of emotion. Um, and so that, that doesn't, that's not meant to depress us, though, or to discourage us. It's meant to animate us with a, with a vision of the true, right? It's not for us to invent, but it is for us to discover and to right. appropriate, which right. is awesome. Right. We're meant for homecomings. Yeah, exactly. Okay, dry salvages. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't even know. Um, <laughs> it's like the name of these rocks off the coast of something like Gloucester, Massachusetts, right. I think. Um, but like, apparently, I read Tom Howard, who teaches. I think he teaches at Gordon College, or he did. Maybe he's emeritus at this point. Mm. But he's like, I asked a bunch of people which rocks they were, and nobody knows. So maybe he made it up. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, he he starts with this description of like uh, the river is a brown or like a strong brown. guy. I don't even know what he's getting at. Um, but it's in this that you have like a little bit more of the sacramental imagery. Um, and it's also in this that he gives, he kind of tips his, what would you say? He gives indication as to the way forward. Right. Like there's like a lot of images here of humility right. and simplicity. Right. Uh, Based say, in the Annunciation. Yeah, exactly. Which is like the, prim, the yep. principal motif. Yeah. And there's, I, I wrote down a couple of lines pertaining to the Annunciation where he'll, he makes reference, like he said, to the Angelus Bale and mm -hmm. to the prayer of the one Annunciation or to the sound of the bell's perpetual Angelus. Um, which our brother, Father Romano Cesario, took as a title for, for one of his books, I think about the rosary. Mm -hmm. um, but here, yeah, like, do, do not let me hear of the wisdom of old men. Um, I think he's, yeah, again, he's kind of breaking down some of our grandiose designs as to how this particular feat is to be accomplished. And just, again, like rooting us in, in simple and modest means. So, yeah, I don't have anything that's particularly insightful to say about it. I just can't remember where it begins and where it ends, to be honest. Cruising, <laughs> cruising on now to Little Getting, I mean, because this is the cr the crash course on the four quartets, which could itself be an entire semester of a poetry lesson. But yeah. here we are doing it in 30 seconds or less on God's planning. Yep. As, as okay, we so there was do. one there was one passage, though, that you mentioned from, from this fourth movement, um, beginning with the dove, right? It's actually the fourth part of the fourth movement. Do it up. The dove descending breaks the air with flame of incandescent terror of which the tongues declare the one discharge from sin and error. The only hope or else despair lies in the choice of pyre or pyre to be redeemed from fire by fire. Yeah, so I love this passage. Um, the dove descending is the name that Tom Howard takes for his book, which is a reading of the four quartets. Um Obviously, we're thinking there of the Holy Spirit. You might also think of a contemporary author, British author, Charles Williams, mm -hmm. who has a book, The Descent of the Dove. Um, but here... Oh, right. Hey, look at that. Nice connection. Hey, cheers. Yeah. Um, here, he gives, us, he gives us what might be the most definitive statement of the way forward, because it's clear that you know, we're all going to be consumed in a great conflagration. He, he actually, at the beginning of the poem, he cites two lines from Heraclitus, mm -hmm. uh, who's this... Pre-Socratic philosopher the who's... fire guy. Exactly, the fire guy. 
who thinks that everything is made of an elemental fire, but also think that everything is in perpetual flux, perhaps, you know, in conversation with this idea about elemental fire. And so he quotes this line, like, the way up is the way down. Uh, and he'll say something about, like, people who think themselves to have knowledge prove themselves a little wise. I forget exactly how it goes. Um, but here you have a kind of Heracletean image, this idea of a kind of consuming fire. And the idea is it's, it's coming for you. You're not going to make it out alive. Time, with its steady advance, will grind you under. So know that beyond any shadow of a doubt. We only live, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. <laughs> and so then the question is, how will you give your life? The question is not whether or not you will give your life, because if you expend your energy in trying to lay hold of this mortal coil and like keep up your good looks or your good health, I mean, those are all commendable things. I mean, provided they're done people. moderately. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> good looks. Wow. Um, right. Uh, fine. Fine. But you're, it's, it's coming for you. Right. And then the question is, what will you do with it? You can either guard it close or you can make of it an offering. And so this image right. of the funeral pyre, it's like, you're going to die. Which one? What'll it be? Self-preservation or self-sacrifice? And I think that that's the way in which we stand to escape from this eternal recurrence of the same or get ground under by the inevitable progress of time as if it were, you know, pure tragedy. It's not pure tragedy. It's been redeemed. But in order to enter into that redemption narrative, we need to be willing to offer our lives in imitation of him who redeemed it. <laughs> yeah, time by time and fire by fire, uh, those are expressions of the principle that we were articulating the end is found in the beginning, right? The Lord is using that which he has made, using that which is uh, at his disposition to, br to, bring about, to bring about the effect of change, right? So it's fire that consumes, but it's only through fire or by fire, right, that that, that ultimately can happen. Uh, same with time. Uh, so I think it's, it's, I think it's really lovely to see, to see how those are brought together yeah. and how they express that principle. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of a thousand passages, and I can, you know, misquote them, uh, <laughs> with uh, with various interjections of words that I myself have invented, which is actually really helpful when you're singing songs, I've noticed. I get like 40% of lyrics right, and then the rest is just totally out of left field. Um, but he follows up on this image of, you know, fire, as it were, and then he says, who then devised the torment? Love. Mm. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> it's like, dude. Okay, so I'm going to read a little passage. Love is the unfamiliar name behind the hands that wove the intolerable shirt of flame which human power cannot remove. We only live, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. So there again, classical reference to Hercules, the shirt of flame by which he was consumed. But it's like, again, in his case, it's tragic because everything's tragic for the Greeks. Uh, you might go out in a blaze of glory, but you are still destined to live in hell because heaven has not yet been opened to you. But in our case, it's not. I mean, the tragedy is not inevitable. That is to say, the heavens are in fact open mm. because our Lord himself has donned the shirt of flame, has gone willingly to his death, been consumed by it, and then borne it up from the grave. And so this idea, we only live, we only suspire, consumed by other, it's just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> now the last lines, because we, we got to wrap up here, the last lines I, I think are just so fantastic because they, they combine so much of what, what we've been talking about. All manner of things shall be well when the tongues of flame are infolded. That's kind of a Hopkins-like little inscape there. When the tongues of flame are infolded into the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. Mm. So I love to see in this, in this last line, Christ, the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, united there in the, in the last line of the work, showing us how, the, how our redemption is brought um, through fire and through rose.
Yeah. No, there's, there's a beauty to it. I think that on the one hand, there's a temptation to kind of romanticize our Christian experience and describe it as if it were just a flurry of positive emotions, but that lasts for like two seconds before it's exhausting. And on the other hand, it's to talk about it as like a kind of dread march to the grave. It's like, sign up for your Christian duty and then die. Um, but, but it's, it's, it's different. So the Bonaventure approach. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, Chapman, everyone. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's different. There's something very beautiful when we can see it for what it is as the Lord reveals it to be. Um, so we ask for a kind of vision and insofar as the poet is one well disposed to impart a vision, I think it's a great, it's a great help for us in our spiritual journey. Mm. Well, so I think the last thing that we have to leave our listeners with is another uh, exhortation to read the poem or to listen to it. Yeah, yeah. Because we just we just marched through this and like a Viking raiding party, <laughs> <laughs> seizing one or two shiny things that we liked. But it's well well worth your time and uh, continued meditation. I would say we have an announcement. The announcement is that the men's retreat is to be held in the middle of August, so August 10th through 13th in Brevard, North Carolina at Camp Catalea Chasatanga, and that's open to men 21 to like 35, I think. Um, so those uh, applications are still open for another couple of weeks. Which is really exciting. We had a great time last year. We did, and we'll that be was, there. So it's It us. was one of my one of my favorite events yeah. that, I, that I did last year. I love the God's Planning Men's Retreat. To all of you, <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of God's Planning. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review or a 10-star review or (laughs) 15-star review (laughs) or four quartet star review. Nice. Yeah, yeah, good, good. If you'd like to donate to the podcast through Patreon, follow the link in the description. You can also follow the links in the description to shop God's Planning merch and to get information on upcoming God's Planning events. As always, friends, thanks for your support and your prayers. Know that we're praying for you. God bless. Thank you.